0: You are listening to the Small Like Hunting Podcast, the hunting podcast that is free of advertisements, bought and paid for opinions, and minutes and minutes of sponsorships. If that's what you want, there's a plethora of other podcasts out there. Here, we're going to talk openly, we're going to talk honestly, and we're going to live in the real world, free of sponsorships and paid for advertisements and opinions that are governed and dictated by them. That sounds interesting. Stay tuned for this episode of the Small Eagle Hunting Podcast. All right, welcome to this episode of the Small League Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Ty Miller, and thank you once again for tuning in. And I understand it's been a little bit. The last episode with Al um, was about a month ago, and the amazing episode with Jake as well um, prior to that. This episode, no guest, but we're going to be talking about something that I feel like as of late, um, it seems to keep jumping out at me. Things keep coming up on either forums or other podcasts, or I'm hearing people nitpick to each other, and uh, there's a lot of different opinions out there, and I guess what I'm going to delve into is just another opinion, but I'm going to try to substantiate everything that I say because... Guys and gals that are listening, this whole uh, deer hunting industry or, or whitetail consulting industry, if you will, I think at times does itself a disservice in making it seem like it's so hard to do. It's really not rocket science. Um, yes, I think there are uh, traits and tactics and things and applications that if you want to get the optimum delivery of uh production out of your property yeah sure there are some there are a lot of amazing people out there that um they've been doing this so long that they've made enough mistakes to where their advice i would hold and weight much higher than others um so i'm not saying that there are not like there are people out there that their services cost what they do because they're worth it, because they've proven it. There is a track record there. But I will also say this. I think in today's world, if, if a man or woman out there or any of you listeners are willing to devote your time, energy, and resources within reason without stripping away your family's um, livelihood or being able to feed your family or stealing from other um, more important responsibilities of yours, but if you're willing to devote time, energy, and resources to... Um, your property, you can make it better. You know, I've never once yet seen a property that cannot be enhanced, that cannot take another step forward. Um, now, that's all within reason. And there are definitely some properties that, hey, you've got to be willing to accept the fact that your reasonable expectations for this property need to be squelched due to X, Y, and Z factors that are out there. I get that. But Let's not sell any property short or any person short. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, one thing that I've always tried to tell every single person that comes to me is you know, I don't know everything. My only goal is to hopefully encourage you based off of everything that I know and everything that I've seen success with, and at times referencing people who I have intimate knowledge with either their success or their property designs to where I can recommend what they've done because it fits in what they've done, even if I haven't done it per se exactly. Um, you know, guys like Jake Ellinger out there, there's some things that I will blindly recommend because I've seen it time and time again work on his properties or others and fellow hunters that I know that have had him as a consultant. Um, same would go for a guy like Don Higgins or Jim Ward, you know I, I have built built up enough knowledge base that I can recommend those people and it might sound crazy coming from a guy, but you know once again, no sponsors. I'm not bought and sold for by anybody. I have no um, relationship that's going to dictate what I tell you on this podcast. So those are gentlemen right there that I will recommend until the the cows come home because I believe in what they do. and they each have a very specific and different you know you get those three guys around a table and talking about a habitat plan, they could be talking about the same property and you're going to get three different plans. Overarching the uh, general theme for the properties and I think some of, the, some of the things that they all would agree would make the property better would overlap. But you're going to get three very different approaches possibly to every single property that if you were to hire each of those guys to do a plan for. And that just shows the diversity of how you can apply a habitat plan and how you can make your property better. Um, you know, I've been called in or, or I know subsequently to me, I've, I've had numerous guys where they're like, you know, hey, I had Jeff Sturgis here like three or four years ago. I just want another set of eyes on this property. And it's amazing what even if a guy came back to the same consultant three or four years later, every good consultant that's out there is constantly learning and constantly changing and constantly asking questions. Why this? Why that? Why are they doing this? What is this? Why is this working? But it didn't always work. And their their growth is exponential compared to the normal landowner because they're not only seeing it on their properties, they're also seeing it on their client's properties and the properties that they walk every single year. So all that to say, you can do this. Each and every single person out there, as I think there are a few hurdles and these aren't the only hurdles, but on this episode today, we're gonna to talk about three things. Three things that I don't care if, if, if this is the only thing that you ever listen to. Um, you'd never hire a consultant. You never have anybody walk your property. These are three things before you delve into designing and planning your property yourself, these are three hurdles that you need to be willing to clear. In my opinion, in order for your property to really jump towards that success. Now, obviously, everything's relative to the factors around the property, you know, if, if, and your goals. You know, if your goal is to shoot a booner, there's going to be some things that you just can't do in life. And that may be the case in your, in your certain situation. But these are three aspects that I know are some of the biggest hurdles for people that I talk to, uh, clients that have reached out to me, clients that have reached out to other guys that I've talked to them. Or just my hunting friends in general. And these are three... Her- now, this is geared towards those folks that really want a deer-centered property. And that's I'm going to delve into that a little bit in, in, in a variety of these different topics. But the three basic things, these are all things that you can control. But you have to be willing to take that power, take that control of each of them. And the first one is not going to shock anybody out there. And that is... Your willingness and ability to control your canopy. If you have timber. Now, some of you out there, you know, I've had a couple people ask me, you know, I bought a 20-acre chunk of, it's basically a blank slate, agricultural fields. And it might seem like a detriment, but you can start from scratch. Yes, your long-term objectives to adding timber, adding bushes, and adding structure in there that's not either a grass or... An annual screening method, uh, planting or something like that. Yes, it's going to take more time for you to get there, but you being able to do that and literally control and introduce in just three to five years a lot of early successional old fallow field type growth is insane. And you're actually going to be. delivering certain aspects of a property that a lot of us other ones out there are chasing constantly to try to encourage that growth between the deer's hooves and their head you know our feet and our armpits is as i like to say you know that's the sweet spot that's where we need our property delivering things to the deer because that's where they live anything above our armpits is very very lightly used and utilized by them um so if you you got to be willing though if you have timber on your property you got to be willing to release that canopy control that canopy because a closed canopy creates a desert that is not conducive for daytime usage period hard stop If you are not prepared to release canopy you are not prepared to make your timber areas conducive to daytime deer use period and the problem is a closed canopy chokes out nearly every desired deer forb, browse, beneath it to the point where what is allowed to grow is either a non-desirable. In my case, bush honeysuckle is a big one of this. It grows better than a lot of native species without a lot of sunlight. Now, there are native species that will outperform and outproduce bush honeysuckle to a degree if the canopy is released. but. You can't expect a closed canopy and then to control your invasives like bush honeysuckle and expect other stuff to grow because if the canopy's closed, it's just not going to deliver for you. So a closed canopy is going to choke out nearly every non-desirable um, or every desired deer browse for beneath it to the point where what is allowed to grow is either a non-desirable or Cannot withstand any significant deer population or wildlife population for that matter, anything that will target those species that we want to be growing and they'll consume them to extinction, anyways. So, a closed canopy forest, you know, think back to you hear guys describe it as a park like setting, you know, or if you can walk through the property in flip flops and shorts and you're not afraid. You know, you I can walk through a lot of clients' properties and a lot of buddies' properties that they hunt. I could wear shorts, a tank top, and flip flops, and yeah, I might get a stick that pops up and hits my toe or something, but I'm gonna be fine. You wanna be fearful dressed like that walking through your property. Briars and brambles and weeds and forbs and young trees and such need to be growing in that area from our toes to our armpits. You shouldn't be able to do that um, and walk through areas that you want deer to be at during the day, now, obviously excluding food plots or trails. But even that, even then, thinking of food sources only as food plots, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that in and of itself is, is tricking you into justifying um, poor conducive deer properties. and and deer areas. So first hurdle that a lot of guys, and some people just can't get over it for a variety of different reasons. Either they love big timber or, um, which is fine. You've got to be willing to accept the truth of your situation that, you know, you would rather have a less conducive deer property and a more conducive timber property. Yes, you can steal from both and try to coexist on one, but you never can fully commit to both 100%. Even I don't commit 100% to one or the other because if I did, I wouldn't have a single tree on my property that is of loggable mature size. Because I can put a tree stand in an 8-inch eight, eight inch wide young younger oak. Um, you know, one of my best tree stands is probably only about a 30-foot tall. Um, I think it's a pin oak. It's not of loggable size. And it's got an awesome tree stand in it. But I do. I leave a few hard mass trees of choice. Even in the hard logging operation and hard girdling techniques that me and Pops illustrated or uh, uh, did this year. On, on my personal property following the sub- subsequent logging the winter prior or spring prior, late winter, early spring prior, we, you know, left some large white oaks. There's a few red oaks that we did leave as well. Um, but getting that canopy eradicated off of my landscape because All of that, all those trees that are closing the canopy up high, that canopy is out of reach of the deer. They're delivering no food hardly. And if they are delivering food, it's for a short time frame when the acorns are dropping or whatever mast producing uh, nut or variety it is, you know, beech, chestnuts, things of that nature, which I don't have anything except for red and white oaks that were of the loggable size that would be producing a hard mast crop for the deer. But I can deliver so much more food in the form of Forbes and brows that are going to just thrive in an open canopy setting, getting sunlight down to that floor, that it's a no-brainer to me. Because in the end, I want a property centered around a deer's ability and desirability to be present during daylight hours during the time frames for which I want them either being shot by me or being safe from others. Do you know what you know, it's not always about I want them on my property only when I'm going to be able to kill them. A lot of what a, a deer manager desires is also protecting deer from, in our opinion, Early harvesting. You know, if I have deer spending more and more time of theirs during daylight on my property, that means they're doing it less elsewhere, which is a good thing. You know, that two and a half year old buck that I got my eyes set on for a year or two from now, he's a lot safer if I've got the property with the most conducive uh, eradicated canopy and lush understory growth. I've got all the browse, I've got all the forbs, I've got the stuff that feeds them during the day and keeps them safe. Because it's thick during the daytime. Closed canopy woods and woodlots really are only gonna attract deer during time frames of which I don't need them on my property anyways. Now, yeah, sure, if you have a really high deer population, deer go where they shouldn't really, where it's not conducive. Or if they feel safe, you know, I I, I had one guy one time, well, I can go to the local park. Which is completely close canopy tie. They've never logged it in over 40 years, and there's deer everywhere. Well, think about that. You remove human pressure as far as hunting, to where the deer feel threatened and are trying to survive. You remove that factor from it. Of course, deer are going to be there. I mean, deer will go any there's a reason why urban deer populations in some areas are so significantly high. And you have some just massive bucks growing in there because they, ha- they, they have one of the largest stressors of their lives removed. So controlling your canopy, that's number one um, on today's episode. It's, it, this is not in a, any particular order. And like I said, there's other aspects of this um, that we could get into, but these are just three. And to add one final note to this is, you know, Yeah, I said you might be wanting timber value. You hold timber value over deer value more. Another thing is that some people just can't get over is the aesthetics of a deer conducive property. They're not the most, um, you know, we've been conditioned to appreciate landscaping around houses and parks and straight tree lines and colorful floral arrangements and real staunch edging and and you know wood chips and and rocks down and pea gravel to eliminate any type of growth that is not exactly the plant that we planted inside of it so when you look at a deer property you're gonna see a mess To many people, my property or my parents' old property, the homestead, was an atrocious, ugly mess. But to a deer, it was glorious. They've got the thick cover. They've got the sight blocking. They're living in what they can eat as well, and there's food and diverse food everywhere. They were never more than a leap or two away from real thick cover that could hide them from any type of predator or hunter. And, you know, that's fine. Maybe you're listening to this and that's what's always kind of held you or made you apprehensive, the aesthetic side of things. And there are some things that you can do to try to make your edging, you know, it's one thing. Some people, you know, they're like, okay, fine. That five-acre chunk, I'll go ahead and I'm going to make it an absolute mess. We're going to do a lot of traditional. We're going to log, then traditional cutting, maybe some girdling, and we're going to get rid of 90% of the trees in there. And it's just going to be a a thick, understory mess. But I hate how that looks. So I'm going to encircle that woodlot with rows of pine trees. It gives a, a clean edge. To an otherwise not aesthetically pleasing thing. I know many guys that do that. And that's fine. They at least are willing to admit that that's a factor. But they needed to find a way to make it happen. Because they understood and know the power and the benefit of having that mess behind the tree line. So let's jump in. So this doesn't this podcast doesn't last forever. Um, the number two thing on or the second thing that we're going to talk about today I need to stop labeling it with numbers but the, the second thing that I, that you can control the second hurdle and this is there's going to be aspects of this one that roll into the last one too but controlling your habitat that sounds really obvious you're listening to a habitat podcast this is a whole episode geared towards the three hurdles to designing a habitat three things that you can control, and then the second one is just to control your habitat. But let's let's kind of unpack this a little bit. Oftentimes, when guys delve into a property, they focus on what is the, air quotes, sexy thing to look at. Where am I going to put my food plots? Well, what, what, what would you plant? I need to know, like, food plot-wise... I just got this brand new property. I want to set it up. And I, you know, where would I put my food plots? What am I going to put in them? And focus solely on food plots. Food plots are the easiest thing to do, in my opinion. Um, even to, to, to just do them, to do them very well. Yes, there's effort. Yes, there's soil tests. Yes, there's things and tactics that you can do to encourage and make it easier on your life for um, soil health. And, you know, go back and listen to the Al Tomechco uh, episode where we talk about, you know, no-till broadcasting or drilling and keeping the soil active and just having a diverse food source um, in your plots. But, On that deer want diversity monocultures of any kind rarely exist if ever naturally in nature now there are certain um elevation points where you get to where the limited growth of there's just not a diverse number of things that can grow in certain settings or certain soil types but rarely especially in the midwest or the immediate surrounding areas it just doesn't happen guys it doesn't happen monocultures do not exist um pinpoint rows of norways that are just perfectly straight don't exist Um, which is one of the things unless i'm trying to put an edge in or designing a a line i'm going to do clusters random clusters five here seven there irregular shapes make it feel natural to the deer but deer want that diversity the brow and and the diversity falls into not just what you're putting in your food plots the diversity falls into what brows exist on your property What woody varieties of trees do you have growing both early, successional, or up high that you could hinge down um, or cut and eliminate and have sprouts? What are the brows like on your property? And what can you do if there's not much diversity? What can you do to make it more diverse? What forbs exist on your property? What natural forbs, weeds, and such are growing on your property? Can you walk into your property and within the first you know, 10 minutes there, can you identify 30 to 40 different plant varieties? If not, maybe we need to look at incorporating more of that into our plans. Um, if grass is overriding certain areas of your property, maybe controlling the grass growth and trying to encourage other herbaceous vegetation to grow, um, more forbs and weeds and such might be what you need to do. Uh, the hard mast, if desired, which exists on your property, is it diverse? Do you have red and white oak variants? Um, I had a pleasure of having um, Mariah Bodges, I think is how you say his last name, on. He's, he's our Indiana deer biologist on another podcast of mine that I do just for Indiana Deer News. And I'm hoping to have him on here because he did a whole uh, acorn study about, you know, why deer might target certain species and such and, and the timings of which. But, you know, one of the things that you need is that red and white. Whites get hit early. Whites germinate the fastest. Um, their nut doesn't stay viable, for lack of a better term, on the ground as, as long. So they usually will get targeted first by the deer and then red oaks late. Um, but both get targeted hard in most areas. You got chestnuts and beech and hazelnuts and just um, whatever can grow in your area. Down in the southern part of things, uh, I don't know, deer eat pecans? I have no idea. I, I've never had the uh, necessity to know that. But any any hard mass tree, do you have diverse offerings on your property? And if not, is your property conducive to the introduction of? Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, obviously the smaller your property gets, the less you can offer them. And you have to pick and choose which holes in a bucket you're going to offer the deer. Um, always starting with the largest hole in the grand area around your property. It's going to make your smaller property that much more significant if you're giving the deer something that they are craving because it's nowhere else. Um, but on along the same lines, it's hard-mashed trees. We have soft-mashed trees if they're desired to exist on your property do you have apple and pear ver- variants do you have ones that p- produce fruit early maybe midsummer early summer late summer early fall midfall late fall winter um plums persimmons pawpaws there's a wide range of mulberries there's a lot of different um soft-mashed trees do you offer a diverse amount and if not Again, you have to ask yourself, these are things that you can control. Can you introduce other types to your property? Bedding variance. Um, Bedding variance and the structure for which is delivered in the bedding areas, to me, is not as necessary. But if I... If you can offer, because each buck is going to prefer, and even doe families, I think, to to a degree. I mean, there, deer are, when it boils down to it, a lot like humans. We all have our preferences of things. Some of us, you know, a lot of us might love coffee, but some of us like and love coffee black, need a little cream, need a little sugar. You know, does a buck, does this buck prefer more of a timber stand? Um, bedding area that's thick and, and, and has maybe a little bit of hinging or just pure um, traditional fall and logged trees uh, with less uh, side cover but just more thick stem count shoots and such. Do they prefer more of a grass, maybe a switchgrass, uh, cold season grasses? Um, do they prefer a, a cedar thicket, a thermal cover? type setting? Do you offer these? And if not, is your property large enough and conducive to introduce or begin to encourage more variety in bedding options and bedding variants? I think the more diversity that you deliver through habitat in food and cover, in plant species, um, and notice I said browse, forbs, hard mass, soft mass, and bedding variants Those were the things I had actually written down. None of those discuss food plots. None of them. Because you don't even really need food plots. Food plots supplement and can make a property that much better. But food plots alone are not going to deliver the vast majority of a deer's diet spread across the entire year. You know, there has been numerous studies that indicate anywhere from about you know, the lowest being 40 to 45 percent to the highest being 60 to 70 percent of a deer's diet, even in large agricultural areas with row crops, is still Forbes and Woody Browse. Browse are a tremendous, tremendously important um, food source for deer that vastly too many people just don't care about. And you're doing yourself a disservice, your property a disservice, and the deer on your property a disservice if you are um, being one of those people. So this this is an aspect that you control. You control. The final aspect, which is, in my opinion, all-encompassing because... If you control this one, then you can convince yourself to do the right things in the first two that we discussed and any other aspect of your property plan and implementation. And that is controlling yourself. You. That is the hardest thing for anybody to get over. It is tough. To convince oneself, like, some examples, some of the hardest conversations I've had to have with people in consults is, you are hunting way too much, or you are hunting in a manner that is the worst for your property. Your entrance and exits, all they do is educate the deer. And make your life harder. And make the deer more nocturnal, as far as usage on your property. Just because, and that's one thing too. Just because the deer that you're seeing are nocturnal on your property doesn't mean those deer are nocturnal. They're moving somewhere. They're living somewhere during the daytime. They don't just stop existing. But your frustration and and your um, unsettled feelings towards the current situation. We're self-made. And that's a hard thing to deliver to people sometimes. So if you're listening to this, you got to give yourself a real self-evaluation. And I think this is the aspect and this is the reason why so many people go to somebody else and hire somebody else or get somebody's thoughts because they cannot see their own mistakes. They cannot see what they've conditioned themselves to overlook. You know, in any line of work even, you know, at my job, it's easier for somebody else to spot my mistakes than necessarily me spot them at times. Especially if you've seen success for a while, you've been conditioned, maybe you got a property, you threw in some food plots, and you shot a couple big bucks on there the first year or two that you owned it. But then gradually... Over time, the last few years, it's, it's just the huntings went down. And you've never asked the right questions or evaluated the, the sightings appropriately, or mapped out your entrance and exits and, and understood how everything that you're doing and the stories that you're reading behind, leaving behind, as I like to put them. Many of you guys have heard me use that analogy, but your stories are telling those deer and educating those deer how to use your property, In a manner to which they never have to worry about you. So controlling yourself on how and when you hunt. How often you hunt. When you hunt. How you access. That might, you know, those two things right there. That might mean that you've got tree stands that you need to tear down. You need to move. Because you don't have a way to hunt them without being a detriment to your property and a negative to your hunting than a positive. Sometimes the most important decisions that a landowner or a hunter can make about their property is not to hunt instead of hunting it. So you got to learn that. You got to learn that your goals, you know, you want to you wanna harvest a mature buck. Okay? That means everything that you do should be driven by that, which means every decision that you make from the steps that you take on an entrance and an exit route are dictated and controlled by that. And while the stand that you're getting to, once you're there, might be perfect if the deer are, in fact, where you hope they are and that buck is, if the wind's good at that stand, that's great, but was the wind good for... For that access. Did you just. Disperse your scent. Towards an entire property section of your property. And educate an entire group of deer. Irregardless of if that buck comes down out of the smaller cover that isn't. Being hurt and you shoot that buck that night, congratulations. It came with a cost because, you know, that three-and-a-half-year-old or that other four-and-a-half-year-old buck or five-and-a-half-year-old buck that you got on your property, he was bedded in that bedding area that you walked upwind of, and it blew right down into him. He watched you. He knows now your route, and if he sees that or, or smells that a couple more times, deer can be conditioned. You know, they're not smart enough to just completely uh, plan ahead to the point of, what you know, they're a reactionary animal, but we can condition, any animal can be conditioned. Look up Pavlov's dog. Um, And I think deer, to some extent, are uh, wiser than dogs. They definitely have to worry about surviving more than dogs. But that's why at times, you know, Guys might come into a property and have a couple gangbuster years, but they've, in the process of doing so, they've been educating the rest of the deer on that property. Don't cut corners. Don't sacrifice educating one section of your property with the hope that you get to capitalize on another property, on another section. Now, I understand some guys are more risky than I am, I get that. I know I have a very uh, conservative-oriented style of hunting, but you know what? It's worked very well for me. I want bulletproof entrance and exits. I want bulletproof stands locations. And if that means I'm going to hunt the exteriors of my property more and not internal of it, maybe not set my best stand, my best stand that I've ever hung on my property still has never seen me set in it during the regular season. To the point where I'm probably going to tear that stand down because I should use it somewhere else. And at this point, that strap, I'm surprised, is still in it and it's probably embedded in that tree, the stand itself. Because I think I hung it back in 2017. So, controlling your canopy, controlling your habitat, and controlling yourself. Those are three crucial and important, and in my opinion, Three things that if you're not ready and willing to do and control, you're not quite ready to design, implement, or attack a plan where the goal is 100% optimize the daytime deer usage of your property, which is fine if that's what you want. But if you do, if you do want a property that is centered around a hundred percent optimizing the deer usage during the daytime, then you gotta do these three things. And you gotta do everything you can within reason and within the time that's gifted to you by God every day. And you know, it's it's like anything in life. None of it comes handed to you. Now granted, some of you out there have enough money you can hire a really big consultant and then they can recommend there's people out there that literally what they do is they go around to people implementing plans. Like they will go in, they'll fire up the team of their guys, they'll come in and they fire up the chainsaw. They do everything. They do all the work. All you got to do is show up, hunt when they tell you to, follow the plan verbatim. And you know, more power to you guys if you're listening to this podcast and that's your situation. You probably laugh at how hard and how much effort I put forth in my deer hunting. (laughs) But I have a feeling that the majority of you listening to this are normal, hard-working Americans just like me. Um, You don't have a ton of spare capital. And, you know, in order of trees from Morse Nursery or Blue Hills Nursery or, you know, like I do, it's a big deal. Which is why you might only get six trees one year. Next year, maybe 12. There's a reason why you try to find cuttings instead of ordering cuttings of red osier dogwood or willows because it's free. Or, you know, I'm probably not the only person listening to this podcast that has used a rear tine garden tiller to do an acre food plot. We're a little different. But that's why I think the majority of us that put forth our time and our resources, and our energy, a lot of sweat equity, see success more than some that, let's just say, don't have calluses on their hands or feet. I think that's all I got for this episode of the Smaller Hunting Podcast. Hopefully those three things that you can control Got you realizing maybe you are you haven't been willing to accept one of those things. Or maybe, you know, on Habitat, you have not focused enough on the browse, the forbs, the hard and soft mass, and the bedding variants. You've just been worried about food plots. That you now need to think and you realize you need to focus on some other aspects of your property. Maybe the canopy thing, you've heard it harped on and you've heard it discussed. But you know what? you understand that you can walk your property in shorts and flip-flops and walk through your timber sections with no care in the world. You know, some some there's the tennis ball theory. I don't remember who it was with the QDMA. I remember there was an article, but you know, you should be able to throw a tennis ball about 20 yards away from you and it should disappear if it's good habitat. You shouldn't be able to see it. So I know guys that you could literally throw a tennis ball 200 yards in their woods. And one, you wouldn't hit anything. And two, you could still see it when it lands. As long as there's not enough leaf litter. So keep all these things in mind. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It means a lot to me. Again, if this podcast is something that you enjoy... Or, any aspect of small acre like hunting is something that you've enjoyed and it is of a resource to you, and you'd like to encourage me to continue to develop these things. None of this is free. Um, you can check out the Patreon page, it's linked on the website, and you can actually uh, set up a, a giving amount. As I think the cheapest ones, I think it's even a dollar if I remember right, I might be wrong, but uh, for basically the cost of a coffee a month, you can support small acre like hunting. And uh, help me avoid um, ever considering having advertisers or sponsors. But again, this is Ty, Small like Hunting. God bless and good luck out there.